weeks talking about uh, this Advent season. Advent means coming. It means the arrival. It's a time where we look ahead to the celebration of Christmas, anticipating what we're going to celebrate on Christmas Eve together. And remembering, of course, the incredible reality of the incarnation. It's the dawning of the light of the world, the word made flesh, the manifestation of the living God as a babe in a manger in a stable in Bethlehem. This is the most extraordinary truth. Nothing compares in all the world. Nothing compares in all history. Nothing compares in any other view of the world, any other reality. Well, what we're going to do this morning, what, I, what our text is going to help us to see is to remind us of the power of the gospel, the glory of what God has done for us, and the oneness that we have in Christ as a witness to the world. So here's, here's how I want to start. I want to begin by pondering together, like stopping and slowing down for a moment, and pondering the uniqueness of the incarnation, the beauty of God coming to us, the profound work of redemption that's achieved through Christ, I want you to consider this. I was reading a book recently. It's a book that was kind of a dealing with some apologetic topics. But the author of this book put this reality of the incarnation in this way. Every major world religion gives a ladder to climb up to God. Rules, guidelines, laws, stipulations. Christianity is the only world religion in which God comes down to man. This is the most radical and glorious reality. It changes everything. We cannot, we've got to remind ourselves of some important things to start here. We cannot merit reaching God on our own strength. We cannot, uh, we cannot merit uh, on our, in our own hearts that are impoverished. Our merit is woefully inadequate. Our lives tainted with sin top to bottom. And we have to ask this question, what are we to do about this? This is the most fundamental question we can encounter. And many people seek answers in various worldviews or religions or pleasures or achievements or substances or things that will not satisfy. And this, this book that I was reading goes on to describe the fundamental difference of the Christian faith. Okay, this is what this author writes. Other religions say, here is the ladder, climb. But the surprising grace of the gospel says, God came down for you. Other worldviews say, here's the way to walk. You can do it, go for it. And Jesus said, I am the way. Take up your cross and follow me. Other worldviews, other religions say, hey, here's how you can be lifted up to God. And Jesus instead says, I will be lifted up on a cross for you. The great I am becoming what we are so that we could become children of God. Friends, this most profound reality, this truth of the gospel is the center of our faith, that we place our hope in Jesus and what he has done for us. And what we need to remember at Christmas is that it all starts with the incarnation. The joining of God and man, the light shining in the darkness. Or as the Gospel of John begins, and we heard a little that Scott had already read, later on in chapter 1, John says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Our text this morning, John 17, because we're wrapping up Jesus' high priestly prayer today. This text, Jesus prays here that his followers would be unified in the message of the gospel, finding our oneness in him and then showing the world the glory of Christ and the love of God by how we love one another, how we are firm and steadfast in proclaiming what Jesus has done. So let's see how that unfolds in the text. Grab your Bible, John 17. We're going to pick it up in verse 20. And if you need a copy of the scriptures, raise your hand. Would love to have you see these words and follow along with me. Uh, John 17, verses 20 to 26. Listen to these words that are the conclusion of Jesus' prayer before his disciples depart to go to the garden where he's arrested. My prayer is not for them alone. I also, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, Though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. All right. The central theme of this prayer, this is what we're going to talk about this morning. The central theme could be put like this. Oneness for witness. This is what the theme of this prayer is. Oneness for witness. And as Jesus prays for oneness or unity for the coming generations of his followers, he makes clear three aspects of this unity. And that's how we're going to kind of walk through this, okay? So as he talks about this unity, he describes first the substance of our unity, revealing the substance of why we are one. Then he reveals the source of our unity in himself and his own being. And then he reveals the purpose of our unity or the mission that behind it and why we are brought together as one under Christ. So that's how we're going to tackle this passage, talking about the substance of our unity, the source of our unity, and then lastly, the purpose of our unity as Christ's followers. All right, so let's go through it in that in that, in that order there. So let's talk about the substance of our unity. Go back to the text, look at verse 20, and I want you to, to look at this, this prayer and, and look at what is described here about these coming believers, that, uh, these coming generations of Christ followers. So Jesus begins here by saying, my prayer is not for them alone. In other words, these 11 disciples sitting in front of him, the, the 12 minus Judas. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Here's a critical thing we need to point out right away in this first line of what it means to be a Christian. We are a people of the word who have a message, 
who are entrusted with the true vision of the world and the true reality of who God is, who we are, and what he has done for us in Christ and where the world is headed. In other words, we aren't confused about who made us. We aren't confused about who God is. We aren't confused about what it means to be redeemed from sin or where history will end. We know the end of the story because it has been revealed by God. We have his words and it's been passed along to us. The great reformer, John Calvin, he, um, many of you know who John Calvin is, he, he once said that the primary organ of the Christian is our ears because we need to hear the message of God's grace. In other words, close your mouth for a moment and stop talking. Stop doing things with your hands to try and earn God's favor and open your ears to listen because our redemption is brought by a message of what God has done in Christ and then received as a gift. Now I'll add to this that the feet and the mouths of Christians are important as well. Because not only have we received the gospel, but we also are heralds, proclaimers, messengers. And we need to get our feet moving, going to the ends of the earth and telling others about Jesus. See, I remember um, last week we talked about Romans chapter 10 where Paul says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The very next verse, he goes on to say this, and you'll see it on the screen. He says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Friends, we have been entrusted with the gospel. And all, chances are, when you think about your own life, why are you here today? Why, why, do you, why have you come to an understanding of and know the gospel? How did you come to know Christ? Yes, it is a work of God within your heart. It is absolutely God's work of transforming you at that deep level. But chances are God used one of his people to tell you. We have passed, we, we are ones who are here today because if you look at this text, Jesus' prayer has come to pass. These 11 that he's sitting with in this room, the reason why we are here is because they chose after Jesus ascends to tell somebody. They told someone who then told someone who in the next generation told someone, who in the next generation told someone, and, and on and on until we here as the church and then globally throughout history, we are the ones who have been the recipients of a message. And this is our calling is we're entrusted with the gospel in our generation, ones who have tasted God's grace and then are called to proclaim that grace to other people. Another way to put this, there's a spiritual mentor of mine. He put this, he said this. He said, we are all beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. That's 
our approach. Because we have received God's grace and he has lavished his love upon us and we get to tell the next person. See, sometimes we forget this most simple reality that who we are is people of the message of the word who share that substance of the gospel pointing to Christ. We tell them about it. See, the, a prime example in the Bible is the Corinthian church. If you read the letters of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, here was a church who had received a message of grace centered on Christ and they had gotten their eye off the ball and their church descended into factions and popularity contests. This is what Paul writes in the opening chapter of 1st Corinthians chapter 1 verses 11 and 12. He says, brothers and sisters, some from Cleo's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. And as he's, as he's calling them out on this division that's happening within them, he says in the very next chapter, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. You'll see it on the screen here. This is what Paul writes to them. He says, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony. Remember, passing along the message. The testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Friends, I want to make this really clear when we talk about what it means to be one as a local church, but also one with the church across time, across history, across this globe. Our unity is not found in seeking the lowest theological denominator or by following a certain popular preacher or by seeking to adapt our theology to the changing culture, or by being flashy or edgy or adding legalistic rules or methods to control everybody's behavior so everyone looks the same. No, our unity is found in the core, the central, simple, most profound truth of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is the grounds of our unity. This is the message, the word, passed along from the original disciples to us. In other words, our unity has substance. It's not just touchy-feely. It's not dependent on human eloquence. It's not about us and our preferences. It's a oneness grounded in the biblical message of who Jesus is and what he has done. That we all are recipients of God's grace. The real work he's done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. Okay, so we have real unity in Christ. And this stems actually from an overflow of the oneness of Jesus with the Father. So let's look at the next part of our text, which is the source of our oneness or source of our unity. Pick it up in verse 21. All right, so here's the message passed along. And then he goes on to pray this. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
There's, I could keep going. There's language repeated here throughout this text of Jesus and his oneness with God the Father. There's this sense that Jesus continually refers to his unity with God the Father and God the Son. The unity of God the Father and God the Son. In other words, in the Trinity, in the eternal reality of who God is, there's oneness of purpose. There's oneness of love. There's oneness of being. Oneness of attributes and character. Oneness in the redemptive work that God has done. As the Father sends, the Son achieves, and the Spirit applies salvation by grace through faith. In other words, this is what I want you to see. The oneness we are called to in the church is not something that sort of stands on its own. It's not something we've invented. It's not something we can even create or achieve on our own. It is a unity derived from God himself. In other words, our oneness is a reflection of the very being of God. <laughs> to try and wrap your mind around that, there's this sense that we can only find true oneness or unity within a body of Christ as we truly abide in the oneness with our Heavenly Father through Christ His Son, the true vine whom we abide in. You remember John 15? We studied John 15 just a little bit ago in the Gospel of John. The Father is the gardener, Jesus the vine, we are the branches bearing fruit, connected to him, our source of life, our security in every season, every aspect of our being. And friends, we have to grasp this most fundamental reality about what it means to be one as a church. We will never have unity without being first united to Christ. Our oneness together comes from our oneness with the Father through the Son. And finding their source of unity, seeing it as a reflection of God himself, brings glory to God. It helps us to see the glory of God. And, and this is the most important thing that Jesus highlights over and over again in this prayer. Pick it up in verse 22 now. He prays that we would be brought to unity so that we would see his glory. Look at what the text says. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and I have, and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Friends, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, you see this word glory repeated again. A couple weeks ago, we defined the word glory as splendor. As glorifying God means to clothe with splendor, to recognize and honor and worship the glorious reality of his authority and power and beauty and goodness. And Jesus has revealed the splendor of the Father through his life, death, and resurrection. I want you to, to sit in the weight of this. It reminds me of, of 1 John chapter 3. If you want to have a devotional text this week, look at 1 John, especially chapter 3 here. Verses 1 and 2, the Apostle John writes this. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. 
The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now, that, now we are children of God, and, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Friends, we have an ultimate hope. When you talk about being one in knowing Christ and having his glory revealed, we'll not only see the glory of Jesus in his earthly ministry and his redemptive work in our behalf, but we have a future secure in the new heavens and new earth where we will know the glory of Jesus unveiled, unmitigated, unclouded by our frail and sinful flesh. That is incredible. This is why Jesus prays in verse 24. He says, Father, I want these dear believers, these followers of mine, and he's talking about you. He says, I want them to be where I am to see my glory. See, there's a New Testament scholar, Don Carson. He describes this future hope in this way about what we will see when we are with Jesus. He says, the glory of Christ that his followers will see is his glory as God. The glory he enjoyed before his mission because of the Father's love for him. In other words, the ultimate hope of Jesus' followers, generation by generation, thus turns on the love of the Father for the Son that you are welcomed into that glorious reality. Friends, do you grasp the unbelievable truth that you're welcomed into the union of the Father and the Son and the fellowship of the Spirit? Welcomed and adopted as blood-bought children of God, co-heirs with Christ, secure and loved, you are now part of the family. You are one in God's family. Joining in and experiencing and knowing his love. See, Don Carson, he goes on to put it this way. He says, this thought is breathtakingly extravagant. He says, Christians themselves have been caught up into the love of the Father for the Son, secure and content, fulfilled because you are loved by the Almighty himself with the very same love he reserves for his beloved Son. He says, it's hard to imagine a more compelling evangelistic appeal. <laughs> In other words, wow, what more could you want? What more would you want to share than come and know the love of God? This is where we get to the last part. Where we talk about our oneness as believers because there's a purpose. There's a focus. There's an outward mission. So let's look at the purpose of our unity. Okay, if you didn't notice earlier, Jesus mentions the world multiple times in this passage. Okay, if you look at verses 21, 23, 25, let me just draw you, your attention to those. Verse 21, in the middle of the verse there, he's, he talks about being one with the Father, and then he says, May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Then skip down to verse 23. I and them and you and me, so that they may brought to be, be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them. 
Then look at verse 25. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. There's, there's this sense of sending, this sense of mission, this sense of purpose and witness here that as we, as we stand on the firm foundation of the substance of the gospel and reflect the source of it in our oneness with God and knowing his love, that there is a simple purpose. And it's this, so that the world may believe. So that the world may know. In other words, our oneness is to be so compelling, so otherworldly, if you will, that, that we point to this reality that God is near, that he can be known, that he can be trusted and followed, that I've tasted God's abundant grace. He's lavished me with his love. I want you to see that too. Friends, this is what we celebrate at Christmas. The nearness of God, that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He's the ultimate fulfillment of this biblical promise over and over in the scriptures. They will be my people. I will be their God. I will dwell with them and they will know me. You see what Jesus says here in his prayer, and remember, the very next line in chapter 18, we're going to get to next in January, is Jesus is arrested, tried, and crucified. His last things he communicates in this prayer is that he is the great revealer of the presence of God. He's the great revealer of the truth of God. He's the great revealer of the salvation of God. He's the one through whom we come to know the love of God in flesh and blood, in a living reality, having walked this earth with you, with me, with us, that he is displaying in a public way, as you see this in the Gospels, God's promise fulfilled to his people. God with us. And then paying the ultimate price to defeat our sin and evil and death forever. Okay, here's what I want to challenge you with this morning, or here's how we need to apply this. We need to grasp... The depths of God, of God's love for us, what he has done through Christ in our redemption, that that reality takes our unity, our oneness to a totally different level. Here's what I want you to consider, especially when we talk about oneness as witness. Sometimes I think we can mistake harmony or conformity for unity. Unity is not harmony and it is not conformity. Let me explain. Harmony is a state of tranquility, a, a lack of conflict. It's this sense of a, a social arrangement where we don't publicly show signs of weakness or relational strife. Many of us try and have harmony in difficult relationships. Sometimes you strive for harmony at work because things are really hard. Sometimes we just want to have harmony at an awkward holiday family gathering. But sadly, some churches try to force or seek harmony to hide failures or conflict. Now, let me talk about conformity for a moment. Conformity is an attempt to coerce outward alignment in behaviors. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, about, it's about forcing the, the methods or the beliefs upon others. It's often achieved through control or manipulation or shaming. It's more about image management and then eliminating everybody who doesn't, doesn't agree. But friends, unity 
is so drastically different. Unity, as Jesus prays here, is so much deeper. It is transformational. It's a sense of being united, as Jesus prays, on solid ground in the substance of the gospel of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. It's a sense of being united in the source of who is our Lord. It's Jesus, the King of all. It's a sense of being united in the purpose of bringing the gospel message to a lost and broken world. Friends, unity, when we talk about the substance, who's Lord, who are we going to tell? Unity doesn't mean we're always going to agree on personal preferences or that we, we won't get on each other's nerves. It doesn't mean that we're never going to make mistakes. But what unity does mean is that we will always choose to bear with one another in love. That we will remember, we will constantly remind one another as a body that we have been loved by God undeservingly through Christ, that he came full of grace and truth. And so we exercise grace with one another. We stand on the truth together, come what may, and we walk in unity in the, on that foundation. See, here's what I, is the key that we need to, to come away with and understand today. We are the objects of God's love through Christ in a transformative way so that we practice God's own love as a witness to the world. That we practice that love and grace and care for one another in the body and then we extend that out so that this lost world may know God. In other words, we can't afford to practice mere superficial harmony or outward conformity because neither of them to comparing with the depths of God's radical, self-giving, transformational love that he's shown us in Christ. Both of them are false when it comes to understanding the gospel and living in light of the gospel. Rather, and here's what is the encouragement and the, the path that we're called to in Jesus' prayer here. We will practice real oneness when we, me and you, grasp our desperate need for God's grace and his love for us. That when we open our hands to receive God's unmerited favor and full forgiveness, that when we sit in that truth and the reality of being receiving the gospel as a gift, you open your hands in that way. It's, it's then when we abide in Christ, we rest in this presence of his spirit, when we hold firm to the truth of the message of the gospel, passed along to us through these scriptures, generation to generation, it's on that foundation we can show the watching world what the love of Jesus is. And so what, what I want to do and what we, another way to apply this, okay, Jesus prayed for these to be true of his followers generations later. I want us to pray to this end also to take some time, and we've been doing this the last few weeks as we've been going through Jesus' prayer, is having some prayer application after the message. And so today, I want to invite you, and I'll launch, I'll lead out in prayer, is to invite you as one body together, is to just pray aloud one, two, three sentence prayer for your brothers and sisters to hear that prays using this kind of focus, that we would stand firm on the substance of who Jesus is and what he has done.
that we would focus ourselves on our attention to the source of our oneness, who is Jesus, and the lordship of Jesus as we commune with the Father, and that we would keep our eyes focused on the witness we have in the world. So let's pray to that end. Join me in, in praying for our church, that we would have oneness in the gospel, oneness in Christ, oneness in our purpose to share that message with others. I'll lead out. A few of you pray loud because it's a large room. Um, and after a number of you jump in and in short prayers, I'll close after a, a few minutes. Father, we come to you now in the name of Christ, by the presence and power of the Spirit. We desire to be a church that is in fellowship, in oneness with you. Firm in what we believe in the gospel. Lord, teach us how to do that as we walk in this world. Lord, as, as we read this passage and contemplate the oneness you call us to, it is by your power, the work that you've done through Christ, that, Father, you have drawn us into the very love and grace you've lavished upon us in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, that as being adopted into your family, we get to sit in this reality just secure and loved. Let that be the foundation we build our lives upon, build this church upon, and then in communion with other believers across this world today in different nations and different places around this country and different churches around our community that when we stand firm on the historic message of the gospel when we are known and loved by you that we get to to be unified as as one as your body and and lord let that let us let us show the world the kind of love that we've received so lord in all these ways um, bring glory to your name as you prayed in this prayer, bring glory to your name. Show us your glory, your splendor in us being united. Not in harmony or conformity, but you truly united in you. And that we would show in this Christmas season as, as we celebrate Christmas, remembering what you've done for us and the love you've lavished upon us in Christ. Let that be the foundation we build our lives upon in this church too. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.